the skills that do matter are the human skills. And I think that one of the things that we should be focusing on are what are those human skills that complements the machine skills, right? Because it's not a, the machines versus humans. It's, it, this has always been true. It's them complementing each other and working together. Your car is a machine. Your car getting you to work is a machine. You're, you're complemented with the machine working together to get you to work. Like that has been happening for a long time. I think it's going to happen more. So we need to focus on the human skills. And when you look at the human skills, we call them collaboration, problem solving, critical thinking, those things, we call them 21st century skills. What we need to recognize is that we are 20 years into the 21st century and we say 21st century skills because it makes us feel better. It makes us feel like, oh, those are skills for the future. Don't worry about them right now. They're for the future. You should learn them for the future. The future's here. So let's stop calling them 21st century skills. That's another trigger word is you, when you call them soft skills. Call them soft skills and I lose my mind, right? Like they aren't, they're critical. They're essential. And when you look at those skills, I am even guilty of saying they're all important. But what the pandemic is showing me is that out of all those human skills that we talk about, the most important one to focus on right off the bat are the ability to learn. Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-renowned people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. Jamie is Google's education evangelist. He explains what that title means, how he got it, and how it results in him advancing education globally. We start by talking about education, especially when student-driven, and how that differs from what happens in nearly all schools, and how education or student-driven education is everywhere in life, not just something to see in school. It's not just a process that you finish with when you get older. The most exciting part of the conversation comes near the end, when our conflicting views on the environment, this isn't our first conversation, so we kind of know each other's views on the future and technology, those differences build to a crescendo of disagreement, curiosity, but not checkmating each other, not trying to win. We build to that. Before then, he gives also his inside view of Google from how they transitioned because of the pandemic and how things happened very quickly there. He's got an inside view of that. Lots more. Jamie can put it better than I can. Here he is. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Jamie Kasap. Jamie, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm very good. And I've been looking forward to this for a while. We've been having these great conversations over the pandemic. And it didn't occur to me that when we met, I should ask you to be on the podcast. And then it just hit me like, oh, I should have you on the podcast. Yeah. And that's why I'm here. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And I wish we'd recorded some of the early ones, but I think we'll catch some of that magic here. And maybe even though I think I don't like to ask people the questions they've been asked a million times before, but you're education evangelist at Google. Did I get that right? Yeah. And that's not the usual title, although I guess that place doesn't always have the usual names. Yeah. No, I mean, they have pretty standard names. I, I'm the only one there with that title. It was actually given to me by one of the 
an executive director in technology for the state of Michigan back in 2008, 2007. It was a long time ago. And I, had, I was presenting at a conference in Michigan. And I, you know, my title was you know, education manager or whatever, whatever the title was, the standard corporate title. And I got off the stage and he came over to me. I didn't, I, I didn't know who he was. He came over to me and he's like, what's your title? And I go, uh, education manager. He's like, no, you're an evangelist. That's what you should be calling yourself. And I'm like, oh, cool. That sticks. Which was, the po- his point was that I wasn't doing manager stuff, that that's not what I was talking about. I was actually talking about, you know, vision and the potential and the good news of education and technology. So that's what the title he came up with. And it just so happens that he understood technology enough to know that there were other evangelists, right? There's uh, Vint Cerf at Google. He's the internet evangelist, right? So he, the guy who invented the internet works at Google. And so he's the chief, chief internet evangelist. So Guy Kawasaki at Apple was the chief product evangelist or chief Apple evangelist. So that evangelist title has been part of the technology world for a time. Okay. And I was about to say, oh, that's like a Silicon Valley thing, but you're not in Silicon Valley either. And one of the things you mentioned last time was that you're, you were talking about how, what Google looks like physically on the inside now, yeah. but you also mentioned you're one of the few, maybe the only who could, has been able to work remotely the whole time. Yeah. I'm not the only one, but there's very few people. Google is in terms of work culture has always been a, you got to be in the office kind of place, right? So that's all the perks, all the settings, all the trappings. That's all about providing convenience and perks to employees who have to be in the same place at the same time, right? That's, that's always been the view of Google, which is to have micro kitchens and lunch rooms and, and workout rooms, everything there convenient for the employees so that they can work in that location. And, you know, people get in on buses and go down to Mountain View for two hours. I mean, they, Google has its own bus company, right, that drives people from different locations in San Francisco all the way down to Mountain View, which during rush hour is a two-hour drive. And, and that was the whole point. Now, the reason why is because they want people in the same place. They want the collaboration. They like the big open spaces where people just run into each other, where you build where you build collaboration, where you build a relationship and rapport and, and all these other things that it's personal and work life mixed together. So there were very few of us that worked from home, especially those of us who were not like quota salespeople who had a specific region, you know, like in Florida and they have to work with businesses in Florida. It makes more sense for that person to be there if there's not an office, but they have quotas. They have to go meet, you know, X number of dollars or whatever for selling ads or whatever it was that they're working on. But for those of us who weren't salespeople, there are very few roles like mine where I could work from home. I, it, it all kind of happened by accident. We used to have an office here in Phoenix back in 2006. And during the 2008 recession, Google had closed a number of offices or consolidated them. And the Google office in Phoenix was one of those. At the time, we had only had like 15 people or 20 people, and it was supposed to grow to 150, but because of the recession, they decided to consolidate offices. And I, I was, it was known that I didn't want to leave Phoenix. My kids were here. I, I, didn't, I'm not, I wasn't going to leave Phoenix. And because my role at the time, 
I was already traveling quite a bit. They're like, all right, let's try this for a year and see how it goes, right? Let's, let's just experiment and see what happens. And that was, you know, 12 years ago. And I was going to get to this later, but now because of the pandemic, all of those trappings are now working. It's not that they're not relevant, but have you been in the physical space at Google since the pandemic hit or have you seen no, it? I haven't been there in months, but I actually talked to somebody on the team yesterday and I think one of the interesting things that's going to happen for companies like Google and Facebook and all the tech, tech companies in Silicon Valley, because they all have the similar culture, which is you got to be in the space. I think that's going to change dramatically. I think you're either going to see leadership recognize and realize that, hey, not everyone needs to be in the office to be productive. Not everyone needs to be face to face, or we don't have to be so strict about it. And potentially there are some people that we're losing because they don't want to be on a bus for two and a half hours every day. And, and so I think there's going to be a lot more discussion on what does a work structure look like? And, I, I, and then you're going to have employees and especially the talented ones who are going to be like, yeah, I'm not going back to the office. Fire me if you want. I'll go somewhere else. Right? Like, so I think there's going to be some revolt. Mm-hmm. I think there'll be some decisions, but I, you know, I'm not in Sundar's ear and I don't listen to Sundar's, you know, team meetings, but I bet you, they're trying to figure out, does productivity level drop because people are working from home? What does that look like? Especially, you know, two months out. The first month, you know, everyone's going to go home and do laundry and watch Netflix. But I, I did this video on working from home. And the reason why most people don't get it, most people don't, I, I hear all the time, I can't believe you work from home. I could never work from home. I, I couldn't do it. Too many distractions or whatever. And that's true for people who work from home you know, one day a week or one day a month, you never get into a swing of things when you do that. When you are working from home every day, I could walk into my house right now. My structure is off building, right? That's number one for me, which was- The structure that your your home office. My studio is is separate from the house, right? And I've been doing that for the last 10 years. If I walked into my house right now and the kitchen was on fire, I would just pour my cup of coffee and turn around and come out, right? Like, like I, nothing distracts me because I'm working. And that you got to get into the swing of that. And I think because this has been going on for so long now that you're going to see productivity levels probably even out because people are used to doing it this way. What was the actual transition like when, I mean, I don't know how things went in California if, if Google was ahead of the curve on saying, don't come into work. I, last time I said, you, you said they didn't miss a beat, but yeah, no, I look from what I can tell, again, my limited view is that Google for the most part didn't miss much in the transition from office space to, to working remotely. And I think a lot of it has to two things, two factors. Number one is Googlers had their equipment, right? I mean, most of us work with laptops. And so most of us have internet access at home. Most of us have video cameras on our laptops, right? So the idea of your equipment becomes your laptop. And most people had their laptops at home. And then, and then Google said, hey, if you want to have your monitor or keyboard or other things, you know, let's grab all your stuff and go home with it. So the equipment was there and, and that, that helps a lot. And also, you know, the technology culture is nobody ever, very few people ever like, okay, five o'clock whistle blows like Fred Flintstone. Yeah. And then you grab your pail your lunch bucket and then you go home and watch TV. Everyone works from home to some degree or another, after hours, before hours, flexible hours, whatever it is. So the idea of working from home, the concept of it was already there. 
And then if you have the equipment, you don't really miss a beat. beat. And what's funny is the same thing in education happened, which is most schools struggled with this going remotely online. The people who, oh, that's because this is the other factor. The other factor is the people you hire. And and in in education, most schools struggled with going online, but the schools that were self-directed, schools that had, you know, had student-centered learning as their core principle, they didn't miss a beat because students were used to working on their own. They were used to driving their own learning. They were used to being self-directed. So schools like, like, you know, Chris Lehman's Science Leadership Academy, they didn't, they didn't miss a beat. They just, all their, all their high school kids went home and just did what they were normally doing. They, instead of collaborating in school, they collaborate online. So I think that the kinds of folks you hire, how you manage them, and then the equipment that you use, all that comes into play when it comes to the transition from working from home to working in an office. So I want to mention here, uh, Chris Lehman Science Leadership Academy is how you and I met. I don't think yeah. we met physically there. I think we met actually at NYU, but that's, you'd spoken at Educon. Yeah. And he and I go way back. And then you also mentioned self-directed learning, which I think of as slightly different than he's inquiry-driven project-based learning. But I had Peter Gray on here as a guest and people who went to Sudbury Academy, Sudbury Valley School. And can you tell me more about, so self-directed learning to me is the more I learn about it, I, I can't read it without thinking how much I wish I could go back in time and, and have gone to a school like that. But you probably have experienced it a lot more than I have. And I also want to preface that this podcast, Leadership in the Environment, overlap between leadership and education to me is overwhelming. And I didn't realize that. But I, the more I get into it, the more I realize it. And that's part of why I'm asking. Right. So, so I think part of it is that we, sometimes we mix up sayings or we mix up different names for things. So to me, there's not very much, there's not a big difference between inquiry-based learning and self-directed learning because the concepts are the same, which is the student is driving their learning through their curiosity. They're being guided through the process, but they're driving it. Inquiry is about what's the question? How do I explore that question? How do I do my research? If there's any difference at all, it's student Student, that's student-led. Self-directed is I get to pick everything, right? So that's the, that's the slight difference between the two. And I would say most adults should be practicing self-directed learning. And, you know, it's funny that you say- In life, you mean outside of school? Just, well, I, there is, to me, there is no, there, I don't see that world. I don't see school, ver- like- Well, I think you said adults should be practicing self Sure, sure. This is what I mean by that. Education okay. has become a process, right? Something that people go through. You go through education, you get educated, you are an educator, you graduate. Like this whole thing about like education becomes a thing when it's not a thing. Education is a mindset. It doesn't matter if you're five years old or 50 years old. Education happens all the time. So this idea that we can separate it between two different kinds of education is mind boggling to me. It's just education. How you practice it doesn't matter. How you, what you learn doesn't matter. What matters is that you are in that mindset of constantly learning and improving in what you do. So formal education is something that someone picked 150 years ago as things that you should learn how to do. And that doesn't make any sense. So for example, you know, you just, I, adults say this all the time to me. You're very creative. I wish I was more creative. I'm not very creative. Or someone will say, you know, I wish I knew more about the environment. I, I know. I wish I learned. I wish I took a class on the environment, right? Because they think of education as a process. They think of something that they should have gone through. When people say that to me, 
My response to them is, no, no, you've chosen not to be creative. You've chosen not to understand what's happening with the environment. You've picked this. Whether you realize it or not, you've chosen that because everything that you need to learn about those things is out there. And because you've separated education from your life, you think you have to be educated in some formal process when in reality, self-directed means you can control that learning, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And when you are in a self-directed, I would imagine your family is a self-directed learning environment. If, and what does it look like when you're in a school that's self-directed, where the students direct themselves, where the students, or where it's inquiry-based? What does it feel like? What are the, how are the students? How is the culture? How are the uh, teachers? How are the administrators? Well, okay. So let, let's be clear here that we're not talking about just random free-for-all, right? We're, we're talking about there are standards, there are expectations, there are these things that are in place so that the student has a, a guidepost to go along. The difference is that there, it's not prescriptive in terms of how you do things and what you actually learn. So for example, I believe from a standards perspective that history is an important thing to study. Why? Not because you should know what happened in France during the French Revolution, but because history teaches you to recognize patterns. History teaches you to understand precursors. History teaches you that you can actually look at history and then determine what's going to happen if you can find a similar event that's happening now, right? Like this pandemic, we've been here before. We've done this. What does anyone out there know anything about the pandemic of 1918? Like, has anyone studied it? Because if you look at that, there's probably some big lessons in that history to understand the pandemic today, right? So history is important. What history you study, I could care less, right? Like, like that's your thing, right? That whatever history you want to study. So for example, here in Arizona, the whole Phoenix system here, the whole water system is based on a canal system that was built by Hohokam Indians 1,500 years ago, right? Study that. Right. Like, what is that? Like, you want to talk about environmental study? Like, why wouldn't that be something that that somebody wants to take on as something that they want to learn? How did the whole Indians build that? Why did they build it? What did they do? How did they do it? How did they maintain it? Like that understanding that is history. It's understanding our, our history here. Now, I wouldn't say that the student, the students in, you know, in uh, Albany, New York, should be studying the Hohokam Indians, right? right? That's not what they should be studying. So it's more about directional. It's not necessarily a free-for-all. It's history is important. Philosophy is an important thing that people should know. Which philosopher should you study? It should be up to you. That's what self-directed means. It's more about you getting to pick and choose uh, based on what you're curious about, what you're passionate about inside the guidelines of of understanding stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's there's a few things that, for me, one thing that blew my mind was when I was reading about Sudbury Valley School that there was a guy who, ultimately, he got a PhD in mathematics from MIT, went all the way through, I guess, 18 years old before college, and never took, I believe, never took a formal math class. Or, you know, if they got a math class, it was because the students asked someone to come in and teach some math to them. Mm-hmm. My experience of learning physics, which is kind of close to math in some ways. It wasn't until my junior year that I started majoring in it because I was I was very nerdy and I was trying not to be so nerdy. But then I was like, you know what? I love the subject. And I felt like I had to, 
I felt like I was on a bucking Bronco. If I'd let go for a second, I'd lose track and I wouldn't be able to catch up again. And so I felt like I had a vision of this very strict order in which I had to learn things where everything built on everything built on everything. And, and there's no way in my model that he could have done what he did, but he did what he did. So my model, I had to go and revisit and think, what, what was I thinking? And now I look at science very, very differently. I feel like my environmental stuff now is, is driven, well, it's the curiosity and the beauty of nature and well, the stewardship comes after that. That's more from the leadership side. Right. And I feel like I'm doing as much science as I ever did, even though I'm not publishing papers, even though I'm not in a lab. Right. But my appreciation and proximity or closeness, interaction with nature is greater. Right. And then I think of, oh man, why did I buy into that for so long? I mean, I know why. Yeah, well, because that's the system that you were sold. I, I think that it comes down to uh, recognizing yourself, recognizing what drives you. But I think it also is a mental thing. They'll be able to say, you know, this is what I want all students to be able to do. Like one of the trigger words for me, I got lots of them, but one of the trigger phrases for me is fake it till you make it. Like nothing, there are very few things that drive me more insane than fake it till you make it. Like when people's like, oh, just fake it till you make it. I'm like, no, don't fake it recognize that you don't know something and learn it. And like, so for example, here's an example. If you work for me and you're going to be a video editor for me, for my YouTube channel, for example, and you say you know everything about video editing, you're going to fake that? You can't fake that. You got to say, I don't, oh, I don't know how to do that. Where can I learn how to do it? So I don't, I don't like that whole idea of fake it till you make it. I like self-awareness, which is, I don't know how to do something. Where can I go learn how to do it? And how do I know I'm learning how to do it? That, that's self-directed. That's self-contained. And, and once you recognize that, once you, it's, how many times have you been in a meeting where somebody's speaking or someone's talking and then they'll keep using an abbreviation of something or an acronym of something. They'll say, you know, PBL, 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 and they'll keep saying that. And then, I'm the guy in the meeting who goes, I'm, hang on, I don't know what PBL is. And then everyone else is like, yeah, I don't know what it means either. Like, people are afraid of not knowing. We, we've made not knowing a, a bad thing, a curse, right? Like, and when you admit that you don't know something, that's like the first step to learning it, right? That's, that's understanding that you don't know it and then figuring out where to learn it. Like, it's such a mental game. But once you figure that out, it, it's so powerful to, to be like, oh, I don't know that. Or when someone says to me, hey, have you read this book? I would argue that 70, 75% of people who you ask, have you read that book? They say yes when they've never read the book, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, Why? Why do we do that? Definitely in physics, when I was, in, I remember being afraid to ask questions because of the fear of other people in the class being like, you don't know that? Right. And a huge liberation was realizing, I'm just going to ask anyway. Right. Then I remember people ask me a lot, like, do you still use your PhD today? And the, the way I use it most, and I, I'm going to say this like I use it more than I do, because I do this sometimes. I get this benefit sometimes. But usually I do what you're just talking about, and I, that I act like I know when I don't. And I see the difference. If you say you fake it, you, if, you, if you're faking knowing something, that's not the same as honestly being like, I know some things and I don't know others. But the value for me of having the PhD in physics is that no one ever thinks that I'm dumb. Right. I can do really things that anyone else would say, oh, what an idiot. Sure. But no one will say that. I got a PhD in physics. Yeah. Now, I say that, but most of the time I act smarter than I am. 
Yeah. Well, look, that's to me, I think one of the things, you know, we look for those anchors, those things that, that give us permission. And what I'm trying to say is you don't need it. Right. You know, one of my, one of my favorite sayings, I say this to people all the time, you can apologize, never give excuses. That's what I meant. Right. So for example, if you and I were supposed to meet at eight 30 and, and I was 10 minutes late, I'm going to say, I'm, I would get on a call and say, Hey, I'm sorry. I'm late. All right, let's get going. I'm not going to give you an excuse. And that's a hard thing for people to get used to. I don't do excuses because the, the saying that I learned a long time ago, which is never give excuses, your friends don't need them, and your enemies won't believe you anyway. And so that, that's powerful to me because if you don't believe that I, if I'm giving you an excuse, that means that I think that you think that I'm just sitting here eating bonbons going, ha, 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 I'm going to be 10 minutes late to this meeting on purpose, right? Like, that's, obviously, that's not what's happening, right? There's a reason why I'm 10 minutes late, and it could be a number of different things. Why do you need to hear any of them? It's like, that's why I always, I, I always, one of the things I always got in trouble with at school with my kids, with William, my 19-year-old was... He would be absent from school for a doctor's appointment, whatever. And so you're like, hand in a note and with an excuse. And I would never write an excuse. Like, I pulled him out of school. Why I pulled him out of school is none of your business, right? Like, like, yeah. like that, that's, that's a powerful thing is this idea that you don't, owe, you don't owe anybody anything. You owe them an apology for not being there when you said you're going to be there. And then that's where it stops. There's uh, people said, I got some feedback on this. There was a post that I did, one of my solo posts. And people called it a rant, but it was talking about how, from the perspective of teaching social and emotional skills, different subjects like history and mathematics look, look very, very different. And for people who only look at what subjects you learn and take for granted the, the test-based system that we have, then they think, okay, history, very different than math. I was talking to this guy who's, whose kid he's now homeschooling, and he's like, oh my God, my kid is learning all sorts of new ways. I didn't realize how little he was learning in school. And he's learning things that aren't just math or history. He's learning. A lot of people in this situation are losing their shit here and like they're stuck at home. They can't, they're not able to figure out how to make their lives work because it was for all sorts of various reasons. I look at Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for 27 years, 18 of which were in Robin Island in this cell smaller than anyone, the apartments of anyone that I know. And if we learn how to write papers and we learn how to solve problem sets, but we don't learn how when times get difficult in ways that school can't really predict how to find resources to solve those problems. What school, school is teaching us something, but it's not teaching us how to, to me, it's social, emotional skill, how to hold your life together when suddenly you find yourself unable to go out like you used to do, or what other resources are out there? I, I think of Thoreau, just in this one area, Thoreau was in prison because he, was, he refused to pay taxes that he couldn't stop to go from supporting a war in slavery. And he said, in jail, or free man, in an unjust society, uh, a just man should be in jail. Right. And that change in mindset, that ability to regulate, I don't want to sound too clinical, that ability to frame how you see the world and assign, assign meaning, create meaning and purpose intrinsically, as opposed to being told this subject is important, this is important, that's important, as opposed to figuring out what, what's important for you, what you consider important yourself. Right. Well, I don't know if school is necessarily responsible for that. I think, I think sometimes we put a lot of things on schools that I don't necessarily agree are their responsibility. I think that when you look at ancient cultures, 
the community was responsible. So the, the schools are only accountable as a community, right? And I don't think it's a burden that schools should take on. I think that the community should be teaching kids that. And that community are parents and relatives and people in the neighborhood and school and everyone together teaching those those values, right? So if you think about ancient values from the good old days, those values weren't taught in a school setting. They were taught through family. They were taught through through culture. They were taught through the neighborhood, right? Like even for me, I, one of my vivid memories of being a kid was I went home one day and my mother just wailed on me and beat the shit out of me. And I'm like, what? What's happening? And And she's like, Johnny, the dry cleaner called me and he saw you smoking a cigarette, right? Like that cultural thing is missing. I don't think schools are responsible for doing that. I think they have a role to play, but to, for parents to say, my, my school should be teaching my kid values, that my school should be teaching my kid how to cope with uncertainty. No, that, that's, your, that's your job. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Oh, yeah. Uh, what prompted me to ask about, to invite you to be on this podcast was you said that you were, since COVID, you've been giving a lot of talks. Yeah. And that that's evolved into a keynote. Yeah. Is this some of what you talk? I'm really curious what's in that keynote. I don't want you to give anything away if it's secret, but. No, there's keep- nothing secret about it. I think that I think what's happening in education is interesting, right? I think that no, number one is this argument that I would get all the time, which is, oh, we can't change education. We can't do anything in education. It's too ingrained. It doesn't move. It doesn't change. And look what happened, right? That argument is done. The, like We can't change education is done. So obviously we can. So that's the first part. The second part is this idea that we taking the education model that we currently have in our schools and saying, oh, let's just do the same thing online, it's clear that that doesn't work, right? So it's finally clear to people that this whole online education is not about replicating a classroom, even MOOCs, even this idea that you have one professor speaking to 10,000 people and they all can follow along and lecture, listen to the lecture, and they can all take a test like that model should be done. And so I think it's important to recognize that what we see is that that doesn't work. That what, what, what does work is understanding like what is it that we want our kids to learn and then how do we use this technology to help them learn, right? That's a different way of approaching this. So that's, I think, a big takeaway. The other big takeaway for me is that we've often talked about the future of work and I often talk about the future of work and I talk about this idea of automation and robotics and watching it over time in history. And you can see automation and robotics and artificial intelligence, machine learning creeping into our jobs like it has been for the last 40 years. But if you put yourself in the position of a business owner, you're a big CEO, you're a little business owner, whatever it is, you know, and, and you take time to recognize what's your biggest risk in your business? What's your biggest risk factor in your business? 
it's human beings, right? Like human beings and, and their, their ability to do work is such a big part of whatever business you run that you as a business owner, only from a business point of view, right? It's only business. You hear that? Is to minimize humans as much as possible, right? To eliminate the need for humans as much as possible in what you do. And so you're going to see a, a hockey stick curve of automation and robotics happening in the business world. You're going to see so much more investment and R&D in robotics and automation. Like right now, you know, we're calling grocery store workers essential workers. And in the same sentence that we're calling them essential workers, we're trying to figure out how to get rid of them completely, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's a supermarket chain in Singapore that's already figured out how to do robotic checkouts, right? So So we call them essential workers and we're getting rid of them at the same time. So that's the hockey stick. So based on that, I think that the most important skills that we can help our students learn is in content. Why are we teaching our kids? Why are we teaching our kids any lessons that are going to give them a test that machines can do better, right? Like why? I don't understand that, right? So let's, let's deal with that. And then the skills that do matter are the human skills. And I think that one of the things that we should be focusing on are what are those human skills that complement the machine skills, right? Because it's not a, the machines versus humans. It's, it, this has always been true. It's them complementing each other and working together, right? Your car is a machine. Your car getting you to work is a machine. You're, you're complemented with the machine working together to get you to work. Like that has been happening for a long time. I think it's going to happen more. So we need to focus on the human skills. And when you look at the human skills, uh, we call them, you know, you know, collaboration, problem solving, critical thinking, those things, we call them 21st century skills. And what we need to recognize is that we are 20 years into the 21st century. And we say 21st century skills because it makes us feel better. It makes us feel like, oh, those are skills for the future. Don't worry about them right now. They're for the future. You should learn them for the future. The future's here. So let's stop calling them 21st century skills. That's another trigger word is you, when you call them soft skills. Call them soft skills and I lose my mind, right? Like they aren't, they're critical. They're essential. And when you look at those skills, I am even guilty of saying they're all important. But what the pandemic is showing me is that out of all those human skills that we talk about, the most important one to focus on right off the bat are um, the ability to learn, right? Mm-hmm. And it's back to what we talked about earlier, which is this self-awareness. I don't know how to do something. Where can I learn how to do it? And how do I know I learn how to do it, right? Like that self-directed, self-contained learning experience is absolutely critical. So that's some of what I want to talk about moving forward is how do we get to that point? I can't believe how central education is to everything. It, and I grew up thinking education is like, you know, finance, they make lots of money. Tech, they make lots of inventions. Education is like just what kids do, but it's, man, it's, it's at the center of everything. It's not just kids stuff. It's, no, think of it this way. It's how our values propagated. Think of, yeah. This is what I've told my five-year-old. And this is not something I believe 30 years ago, right? I have a 27-year-old, a 19-year-old, and a five-year-old. And my thinking has changed dramatically in those three generations. But because I didn't do this with my other kids, but my five-year-old, I tell my five-year-old, I don't teach her math. I teach her life. And what I mean by that is math is in everything. There is nothing that exists that doesn't have math in it. Nothing. Everything has math in it. You can use math 
for everything, right? And so this idea that math is in everything is important because it, it's not a separate subject. It's not something that, you know, the, the sun beaming down on the grass that I'm looking right there right now has a mathematical formula. There's a distance of the sun traveling. There is a temperature mathematical formula. There is a mathematical formula how long that sun can blare down on that grass before that grass needs water. I can get it down to a microsecond, right? Like math is in everything. And when you teach kids that math is in everything, then all of a sudden they start seeing the math. It's like being inside the matrix. And my kid goes around and counts things and figures things out and looks at shapes and and looks at things and how they're being built. And she sees math. And we don't, so this idea that, that school is some separate thing and that math is some skill that you learn is insane. Math Math starts at literally when you start walking, math is involved, right? Like the weight of your head compared to your shoulders and how far you bobble and the mm-hmm. gravity pull. Math is in everything. And we don't teach kids that. Yeah, you take me back to senior year in college when I took modern algebra. And if people think algebra is like X plus one equals three, solve for X. Modern algebra is like this study of symmetry. And it's, I often call it the best class I ever took because I'd walk out of there and I would see symmetries that I never saw before. Mm-hmm. And it was like poetry. It was like, actually, I get it better than I get poetry. And if you say, well, what, what good is that for? I don't know. It's like, what's a better life worth? <laughs> what's life with more beauty in it? Well, it's not even about the beauty part of it. Math, the math helps you understand things. The math helps you understand problems. It helps you understand solutions, right? Like, like even the stupid example that I just gave you about the sun blurring down on, on the grass. Using that math formula, I can tell you how much I should water my grass so it doesn't burn, right? That, that's a solving a problem, right? So math is about the solutions that you create to the problems we face. I'm scared to ask this, but what's the reception of this to, from different places? Well, I mean, I think most people get it. I think most people agree. It's not something I often talk about. I talk to students more about it because the idea of like pulling, even in kindergarten, like pulling out a workbook and doing two plus two is mind-boggling to me, right? Like, especially early math, like I can use everything on my desk and teach you multiplication, addition, subtraction, right on my desk. And just the stuff. That's just the stuff yeah, in life. I don't, need, I don't need a workbook, right? So, so that's what I'm talking about. Like we separate right off the bat, right from kindergarten, we separate it. Here's your math workbook. Why? When math is right in front of you. Okay, the 21st century skills that you talked about. Yeah. They also sound like the skills that pre-industrial kids would learn because that's what you had. And I feel like they're actually returned to before. Like when I learned about Sudbury Valley, I keep using that as an example, but actually Chris Lehman's school too, that they're learning to interact with each other. Like when I go to Chris's school and I look in the classroom, I can't, if I squint so I can't tell people's ages, I can't tell who's a teacher and who's a student. They're all actively doing things. Mm -hmm. And the emergence from that, what comes out of that among other things is that people like one of the guests I had on this podcast, Nicole Beckwith, she rebelled in every school in Boston and she just didn't like authority. That's what it looked like. And then when she went to Sudbury Valley, she actually spent time with the administrators. She was free to do whatever she wanted. Why did she go toward what looked like authority? Well, when the when she had a role in making the rules and she understood why they were there, it's not, as you said, it's not no rules. Then it made sense to her and she wanted to participate in what before she was rebelling because against because 
she felt excluded. It was handed down for various reasons. But I think that it, I think that what you're the skills of of the social and emotional skills. I think kids naturally learn those when they're not sitting in rows and told what to do. Right. And in some respects, it's a return to what we've probably learned for most of our history as human beings, going back hundreds of thousands of years. Well, yes, except for this, which is that we did learn specific hard skills back in the good old days. And that's why I hate the term soft skills, because we pretend like we have hard skills and we don't. Right. So, so as an example, if I put you, you know, well, you would be different, but let's say you weren't a physics PhD. If I put you into a time machine and you went back 200 years and you just walked out with the clothes on your body, you couldn't bring anything with you. You walked out and people gathered around you. They saw you come from this time machine. They know you're from the future. And they're like, oh my God, what, what do we need to know? Right. And you're like, oh, oh look, oh, in the future, we're going to have these devices that all the world's information, all the books, all the information that you see in libraries and all the books in your houses, they're going to be on this little device and it's going to be in your pocket. And they're going to say, my God, that's incredible. How, can, how do we build that? What, what, how does that work? Most people would be like, I don't know. I have no idea. Right? Like, oh, in the future, we're going to have these things, plastic, where you can shape things. You don't have to like bang out metal or steel. You're going to be able to shape things into molds and be able to create canisters and, and boxes and all. And like, well, how? How, does pla- how do you make plastic? I, I, I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea. Right? Like most people have no hard skills at all. And so this idea that call things soft skills versus hard skills when what are the hard skills, right? Unless you're learning a trade and that's in the olden days, you learned a trade, right? You learned craftsmanship, you learned woodwork, you learned sewing, you learned something that 200 years ago, you could go back 200 years and every single person could teach the people 200 years earlier something about their present. When in reality, we can't. Like most people can't tell you how the internet works, right? Most people can't tell you how their cars work. And so all of a sudden, you know, like when's the last time you saw somebody's car break down and they were able to fix it? The mechanic can't fix it. Right. So, so I, that's why I don't like the term soft skills because it pretends like we have hard skills and we don't. You know, it makes me think of something I say a lot. People, since I'm in my fifth year of not flying, people are often like, well, how do you do this? How do you do that? And they think that you must fly in order to achieve. There's certain things that they think flying is the way to achieve, you know, seeing, spending time with family or uh, making a living or getting adventure. But we don't have emotions today that people back before didn't have. It's not that it creates something new. We're not happier as a result of it. On the contrary, if we feel that something's necessary in order to achieve that outcome, then we actually are likely to have less of that in our lives. Take adventure. If you want adventure and your way to get adventure is you buy a ticket, you get on a flight. Well, for one thing, whoever controls a flight is going to be able to get your money. They're going to be able to keep you from what you want. But if you learn how to create adventure, which I think then you can have as much of it as you want. Yeah. And where this goes is you're talking about if you went back in time and tried to talk about hard skills, most of us would not be able to. If we took someone from the past and brought us forward, I bet they could teach us soft skills better than we know them. I mean, the way I usually put it is if if Buddha or Jesus or Lao Tzu or Aristotle were alive today, I don't think Buddha would say, I thought I was happy before, but now that I can fly and have an iPad, now I'm really going to be happy. Yes. But you and I disagree on this, right? This whole idea of flying, because this is the other way of thinking about this argument. 
you know, one of the things that Abraham Lincoln often talked about was that he never got a chance to visit Europe, right? He never got a chance to see what Europe was like. And, I, and here's the argument would be that if you could take an airplane and bring it back to Abraham Lincoln, would he get on an airplane and go see Europe, right? Like, like this idea that because people didn't travel back in the olden days, it's because they didn't have a choice to travel, right? So you and I have this disagreement of to travel. I think, I think human beings are- wait, wait, wait. Hold on, wait, you switched yeah. from flying to travel. Flying pollutes travel. You can travel by bike, you can travel by sailboat. So I, I don't have a problem with travel. I love travel. Right. But we have to include what's coming out the back of the jet. We have to include the oil wells and the people displaced from the land and the military supply lines that keep the, the military to keep the supply lines open. So if but Lincoln- a, but, but this is the argument that we always get into, which is great, right? Which is that's a temporary problem. In the scheme, in the macro of, of innovation, that's a temporary problem. Whether we, this whole idea, again, you know, you and I have these discussions all the time, right? Which is that, you know, we are damaging the earth. No, we're not. We're not damaging the earth. We're damaging our life, right? And we don't ever focus on that. The earth is fine. We can take all the planes, fly them around for 10,000 years, and there's nothing that's going to happen to the earth. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to. the wanna, earth is when, on a, the when people is talk on a about the earth, number scale. Let's, let's posit that the earth is not going to split into two and fall into the sun. The way I say it is I don't, because of this, I don't say we're damaging the earth. We're, we're lowering the earth's capacity to sustain life in human society. Yes. That's a different argument. That's not the typical argument from environmentalists. I can't speak to that. Go, go, go find a t-shirt that tells me that. All the t-shirts say, save the earth. I, I can't speak to that. I, I, <laughs> right. I mean, my point is that it's a, my point was that I don't think that you could take travel. You're right. Travel is the thing, right? Exploration is a human capacity. Like we have to explore. That's what we do. Yeah. That's what we've done since the beginning. Right now we're using this airplane that brings damage to the world or to us, but that's a temporary problem because in 2000 years, we won't be using you know, oil to travel around, right? We'll be using air, you know, whatever, whatever that thing will be. It's always been a temporary thing. It's, you just happen to be alive when it's a problem, right? Just like cars, you can argue, you know, back when in the 1900s, those cars with no carburetors and no filters on them were polluting the sky like crazy. But that was a temporary problem until we built electric cars. And now we'll have electric cars. You know what I'm saying? Like, like these are in the macro of things, you just happen to be living in the time that you're dealing with this problem. I don't accept just off the bat that this problem would be solved. It could, mm-hmm. planes, or the exhaust coming out of the planes combined with the, what we're doing to the land and the sea, that that will result in a large number. Uh, it will result, as far as I can tell, if we don't really change course drastically soon, mm-hmm. a lot of people are going to die, like billions of people. Sure. The population of the earth is going to drop by a lot. And the people who live are going to be living in a place where their IQs are going to be lower from all the stuff that they're drinking and all the things. And if they go to the beach, it's going to be plastic. And yes, 10 billion years later, this will all be a blip and nothing. But from that perspective, all of, I mean, so was um, Abraham Lincoln. So his lack of not getting to fly or not getting to travel as much as he wanted, that's also not an issue. Well, it is in a sense that for him, he had a one in 400 trillion opportunity to be born. And the idea that 
he doesn't get to experience it. And this is the issue, right? That he doesn't get to experience it the way he wants to experience it is one of those battles between greater society and individual wants, right? So this is a battle that we've had throughout history. What my point was that flying and behavior, we just neglect the pollution and we just say, well, I want to fly. That could result in suffering on a, on a scale that we've never seen before. And it looks, that's what, that's what, when I look at math and science, when I look at nature and the patterns, it seems very likely to happen unless we, I mean, it's already happening. So I, I can't get on a flight and not think of what's coming out the back of the jet. And it may be that somewhere in the future, it'll be rainbows and unicorns coming out the back. But right now it's not. Right now it's right, but but poison. you can also you can also argue that you have to go through these experiences to get to that point, right? So here's your homework assignment. Go watch Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth and all the predictions and in inconvenient truth about what was gonna happen. That's old enough now that you can go back and review it and see how many of those predictions actually came true. And very few of them have come true because because we've innovated, we've done things to kind of counter, not all of them. But, you know, one of them was like, we would have, you know, 10 billion people by now and we don't, right? So like we adapt, we change, we do things. Now, the critical question for me is, are we going to change in time? When is the last time we're going to have a, oops, we didn't do it in time, right? Like, I think we're close to that. That's a good argument to have. But, but the idea that we can predict what's going to happen even 50 years from now, innovation helps take care of some of these things. It was only a couple generations ago that people were saying that we might have a giant pandemic. Sure. And now we're having it. But, but they also said, here's what we could do to prevent it. And we didn't do those things. And had we done those things, there's a good chance we wouldn't have had this pandemic. Sure. I mean, the flu is a pandemic. So we could have less of that too. I mean, but this is... Right, well, that's, that's what kills me, right? Like, I, I, like every time something... Things, the same things that prevent the, the coronavirus prevents the flu. The same things, right? Washing well, your hands. Already, oh, no, no. Hold on. Wait. That's, that's what you're talking about transmission. Yeah. But for the, for the virus to mutate and then jump to us, flu was around. This didn't exist. I don't, know, I don't know how long it's been before it jumped to humans, but it didn't jump to humans until very recently. That is preventable. And if we keep, say, going into wildlife territory, we're going to keep getting or keep factory farming. We're going to keep getting more viruses to jump, to mutate and then jump to us. Sure. We can do something about that. Sure. Well, or we could keep, or we could keep doing what we're doing because it's more profitable. Should we change what we're doing in order to prevent future, in order to prevent future pandemics from happening? And the nature of a, of a human will tell you through history that that's not going to happen, right? Tell me a time in history when we did something. When we took action against something that wasn't happening to prevent action that was going to happen 10 years later. So my mind jumps to something I can answer faster. So I'll just say that to put it out of the way. Yeah. But there are certainly plenty of examples in, histories, in history when we didn't, certain populations didn't do things and the population suffered catastrophic uh, collapse. Uh-huh. So now, is it inevitable or have we done something about it? So my point is that- I haven't studied I, that. So, so here's my point. Is that, you, do you put your seat, do you drive in the car? Do you ever go? In- wait, 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 hold on. Wait, I'm sorry. Can I answer the question? Sure. Okay. Here's an example that has been a major change for me because I see lowering population. I thought the one child policy, forced abortions, forced sterilization, tearing down your home, it didn't work. Various examples in Puerto Rico and other places. But then I learned about Machai, Vir- I can't say his last name, in Thailand, who 
was like looking the projections of economics and seeing that if he kept growing in Thailand, this is in the seventies, I think that it would exacerbate economic problems of, of um, the haves versus have nots and, and poverty and things like that. And he began a policy of, this is him. I mean, he worked with the government, but it was mostly him. And he started a nonprofit. I think the opposite of the one child policy. It's, it was non-coercive, fun, uh, voluntary, leading to, I think they went from seven children per woman to 1.5 children per woman within about a decade. They had a superhero character and they had slogans and things like that. And when I heard about that, I thought, until I heard about that, I thought if we tried to manage population, that would be a cure. The only cures I knew of were worse than a disease. And so I couldn't ever speak about those things because if the cure is worse than the disease, take the disease. And then, but this was more about fun and playfulness, non-coercive. And this I offer as an example of a case where someone looked ahead, saw something, changed something. And it wasn't the only nation that did this, but that's the one that I've heard of the most. Sure. And again, I, I think that's a great example, except I think that he he tricked everybody into doing that, right? Like, like, like nobody did that on, on their own, right? A, a group of people didn't say, oh, we're looking at that. We definitely have, like, they had to be tricked into doing that, which is fine. We do that all the time. My point is that it has to happen before we react to it. So this pandemic, to me, means that we're going to react to it in some way. How are we going to react to it is still up to be seen, but, but we typically do that. Seatbelts in cars would prevent deaths since the first car was invented, right? Like we've known this for decades that seatbelts in cars prevent deaths. And car companies refuse to do it and refuse to do it for profit reasons and for other, you know, for production reasons until there was enough mass of people to be like, I'm not buying a car until there's a seatbelt on it or until government regulations said now you have to put seatbelts in cars. And now we do, right? So Things have to happen before people react to it. They don't do it preventatively. They, they look at the, the stats and then they do something with it. I feel like it's happening. I'm in the semi-rural area and there's garbage everywhere. There's all this die-offs of coral reefs and things like that. I, I, like, what more does it take? I feel like it's happening. It's, yeah. I propose we continue this another time. I mean, I don't want uh, I mean, no, to... Actually... I like to get deeper on this whole idea of innovation and how, here's a key question. How critical does a problem have to be before an innovation happens? I propose we record that and we start there next time, if that's cool with you. Yeah. Okay. Well, anything to, to wrap up with? Any, any last statements before? I mean, we're going to have a next time anyway, but. Uh... Yeah. No, I, I think this is a great discussion. I think there's lots of things to talk about. I think at the end of the day, when you, when you boil it all down to whether it's environmental issues, political issues, social issues, education's at the core of everything, right? And being able to, you know, I often hear people talk about how we need to educate, we need to educate, but reality is we need to teach people how to educate themselves. And if we can do that, we can get to a self-centered model where people will understand they don't know something, then they won't have the excuse, I never finished high school, I never went to college, like I never, because we make it this formalized thing. And because people don't go through the formalized process, they feel like they're never educated. And, and that's, that's sad to me. Jimmy Kasup, it, it pains me to close right now, but because uh, I want to keep going and I, and I look forward to keeping going. Thank you very much. Sure. Thanks for having me. Oh man, it's difficult to stop a conversation like that right in the middle, but we've already scheduled our next conversation. So there'll be more to come when we get to talk more again. I love that we knew points of disagreement from our previous conversations, but instead of trying to defeat each other, I think we tried to learn. 
I talked to a lot of people with what seemed to me similar views on technology in the future to what he expressed, but my experience so far with them has been that they're close to other views. I suspect that they see that kind of, the same kind of resistance in me. I can't tell. I don't know. I'm not them. But with Jamie, I felt that we were looking for understanding, to understand the other's views. So sorry we had to cut off, but I look forward to bringing more conversation with this guy who at education at Google is at a position to influence many people and many organizations. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.